It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Hi, I'm Chris Dyerwald, and this is The Remnant with Jonah Goldberg, but without Jonah Goldberg. Uh, uh, El Capitan cannot be with us this week. And so we will soldier on. We will endeavor to persevere in the face of these adversities, uh, in the first week of August in Washington, DC. Um, but we will not do it alone. We will have help. We will have probably the best help possible, um, in A.B. Stoddard. A.B. is, uh, a lot of things. She is a cool chick. Uh, she is a great mom. Uh, she is hilarious. Uh, but she's also, of course, one of the most level-headed, stable analysts about what's going on in Washington and with elections. Uh, she brings uh, both humility and perspicacity to her judgments, and she is truly one of my favorite people. Hello, A.B. Stoddard. Chris, it's so great to be with you. Thank you for all that fluffing. It's very true, though. <laughs> and I feel now like you and I, I, who are among the most remnanted remnant guests of all time, finally, it's like our parents have gone out of town for the weekend, and we finally have found the key to the liquor cabinet, and we can just do whatever we want in here. This is good living. Yeah, we're going to just be set free to just, Blast the music. Totally. Have friends over, use the car, drain the liquor cabinet, and maybe even get monkeypox. Uh, whatever, right. Whatever it takes. The, you're, everybody had the friend who was like, I will bring a pickle jar full of vodka to the party because I'm taking it out of my parents' liquor cabinet and replacing it with water. They'll never know. <laughs> right. I think most parents were out of it, and they found that stuff out too late. I don't know. I, I, I've never... We've never had that with our kids. We, we, um, we never, they never, I think they just were smart enough to not check the liquor cabinet because they figured out it was active. Yeah. <laughs> was, uh, yeah. Well, I, I remember my brother and I, my parents were building a house and, uh, my brother and I, uh, discerned that it would be a good idea to have a party at the construction site. Uh, the house was kind of finished, but not really finished. And there were, Definitely large, deadly pits, two large, deadly pits that were open. I believe you had to walk across an eight by 10 uh, to get into the house. And the look on my father's face when he finally arrived, somebody had had told them uh, uh, that something was going on. And the look on my father's face when he arrived, yes, he was <laughs> angry, but more incredulous at how stupid we were at just the, <laughs> the, 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 the magnitude of the stupidity, I think. Kids now are a lot smarter than we were. I think that's true. Well, 
the truth is they're less bored. And so, I mean, that's just the truth, right? They can look up anything on their little computer in their hand and they can watch any movie, anytime, anywhere. We couldn't do that. We were waiting for Dallas to come back next Friday night. I don't know. I think we got into more trouble and more, you know, um, stupid criminal tricks because we, you know, every once in a while, we just ran out of imagination. We had to do dumb stuff. It was hard back then. Well, it was it was especially hard in Ohio County, West Virginia, where uh, what counted as a high social life uh, was uh, drinking beer out of the uh, trunk of somebody's dad's Oldsmobile on a gravel road somewhere. But it was fun. I mean, we we thought we were the height of sophistication. We thought that we were really living on the edge. Uh, it's it's sad and funny. And now, uh, oh, by the way, I have a theory. You've lived in Washington. Most of your life? Much of your life? How much Since of your life? college. Yeah. So August is not as bad in Washington as the end of July. The end of July is the worst period in Washington. It's so hot, so muggy, and it's so pleasant. I'm in a stuffed pork loin phase in, my, in the kitchen. That's autumnal food, and I'm already there. <laughs> I have noticed a break in the humidity. I mean, and the, the temperature's definitely gone down. I was having a meltdown just mentally in the humidity about six days ago. Then we got this break in the temperature, and it's still a little humid, but it's definitely better. Today is almost palatable. We went up to the Greenbrier, went down over to the Greenbrier uh, for a week in the mountains, and we timed the humidity just right. We came back right after it had broken. And again, I am celebrating with the stuffed pork loins. I just, I, what can I say, but I know how to live. <laughs> we do. I, you know, what can I say? Uh, I'm going to donate my body to science fiction. Uh, so what I, I the, the, the leitmotif for our discussion today is to determine three things. What do Republicans think is happening in midterms? What do Democrats think is happening in midterms? And how do those two things differ from reality? Now, let me start with a conundrum. In, on this date in 2018, Donald Trump was underwater in his approval rating in the 538 average by 11.4 points. Uh, Joe Biden today is 14.4 points underwater. Uh, uh, and this date in 2018, Democrats enjoyed a 7.9 point advantage in the generic ballot. Today, Republicans enjoy an advantage of only three tenths of a point. So Joe Biden is doing worse in terms of job approval than Donald Trump was at this point, but his party is faring better than Republicans were at this point. Please explain. Well, Presidential approval um, has been a powerful uh, indicator for how midterms are going to turn out for a really long time. And um, you and I, you know, often cite this, that the historical average going back to World War II is the loss of 27 seats if your party's president is in their first term and you're holding control of the, of the House. And so for Trump, that was 40 seats, for Clinton, 50, for Obama, more than 60. And, and that... That's you just you take those losses in the first term. Then, if his approval is terrible, it makes it even worse. 
Then if you have only four seats to hold on to by the you know quick of your fingernail, then that's another problem. And then you pile on real substantive issues like 40-year inflation and very, very uh, uh, potent uh, increase in crime, which across you know all parties and all polling is 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 important to issues and every uh, I mean to voters in every kind of neighborhood and community in the country, uh, and um, and then you know you have issues like uh, chaos at the border, um, which is a problem, and COVID lockdowns, all the stuff sort of that's hung over from the twenty twenty election as well. So into this into this red wave walks the Dobb decision from the Supreme Court, in addition to some other Supreme Court decisions that make the court look like this, you know, unelected for life band, uh, you know, cabal of people that are totally out of step with the majority of opinion uh, in in the electorate. And, um, and you combine that with some mass shootings and you just have a really, a really pissed off, uh, it, it awakened part of the Democratic coalition and some voters in the middle, independents who are skeptical of both parties, who are probably furious about inflation and maybe you're thinking about like six things now instead of one. My theory of the case, Chris, is that the the inflation voter still comes out. I mean, if you were really mad at the Biden administration, you looked at um, in, you looked at inflation, and you looked at um, Afghanistan, and you looked at even he couldn't really pull COVID together. It's still you know such a pain in our ass. You, you know, you, that person, I think, is, is coming out still to vote for Republicans. And they really want to be a check on the Democrats. They really want to be a check on the Biden administration. What I do think, though, is that now you have a bunch of these kind of uh, Biden voting Republicans from 2020, independents, and maybe, you know, members of the Democratic coalition who don't vote in midterm. So, you know, younger voters, um, I don't know. Uh, I think that you just have a new set of pissed off people who are going to come in and join the inflation voter, and that's going to end up mitigating the Democrats' losses. Do I think they're going to lose the House? Absolutely. If Republicans have a terrible night and pick up 11 seats, they have a majority. Like, this is not really a realistic scenario for Democrats to hold the House. Republicans picked up 13 seats, right, in 2020? Big. Democratic year when Biden was supposed to win by eight and didn't. So I just th- I'm just really still believe that it is it's a slowed red wave, but they get the they get the House. Democrats are in denial to think that abortion is going to save them. And um, I, but I do think that if you look at the gubernatorial races and and the Senate races, Republicans are just freaked out. It's not going their way. The candidates are bad. The fundraising is dwindling. The polls are bad. And all of a sudden they're thinking, what red wave? I mean, they, they really, they want, they want to win gubernatorial races in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. And they, they, they thought they were one seat away from a Senate uh, majority. And though all this can change right now, it's panicking them. And with good, and with good cause. So on the first point, um, the guys at Decision Desk HQ uh, did a poll uh, for uh, my my family at News Nation, uh, and looked at this question. How will, Supreme, how, do, how will recent Supreme Court decisions affect your likelihood to vote? 
And the numbers with would the things that so overall Democrats 70.6 compared to Republicans 50.4. So that is a huge turnout advantage for Democrats. Um, and then among black and Hispanic voters, 15 and 20 points ahead of white voters. Uh, and that so we're obviously talking about Dobbs here uh, more than anything else. The so that would explain some of the mitigation why Democrats. Because earlier in the cycle, Democrats were trailing on the generic ballot regularly by five, six, seven points, bang, bang, bang. So this would explain some of this. We should also point out that if the generic ballot were tied, you would still assume that the Republicans would win the House. Uh, The reason for that, no, is not gerrymandering America. It is because uh, Montana is a state, uh, because being the rural party has some real structural advantages in the House um, uh, because of at-large districts and all of that stuff. And Democrats are disadvantaged because they have tight urban, they have a lot of tight urban districts. So anyway, uh, a Republican advantage of 0.3 is really like a Republican advantage of three or something like that. Uh, So we should bear that in mind. We should also bear in mind that among Republicans, we've heard a lot of talk lately about how unpopular Joe Biden is with Democrats. And this same poll uh, reinforced that, that he only has an 82% approval rating among Democrats. Uh, An incumbent president going into his first midterm should have a 90 or 95% approval rating in his own party. That's what what he or she would want to have going into midterms. Biden's down at 82. But if you pull it back a little, something interesting. 30% of Democrats said they don't want Biden to run. But 26% of Republicans said they didn't want Trump to run. Um, And by the way, 63, 64% of independents don't want Biden to run, and 66% of independents don't want Trump to run. So I think both, or tell me what you think. I think both parties, both in the activist cores and in the, the mainstream, are pretty despondent about the circumstances of their own parties. Um, We're recording this uh, on a primary day. We've got three uh, Republicans who voted to impeach Trump uh, who are up for election, two in uh, Washington and one in Michigan. Uh, We've got abortion on the ballot uh, in Kansas. But to your point, A.B., Herschel Walker is an unforced error, right? Georgia is, a, Georgia is a Senate seat that Republicans should be able to pick up right off the ground, like a peach that fell off the tree. Uh, <laughs> Raphael Warnock is not just a Democrat. He's a liberal Democrat in Georgia. He's in the wrong year, in the wrong state at the wrong time. Herschel Walker is not sure about how air moves, and he may also have once, uh, did he kill a guy, tried to kill a guy, whatever, not important. He's having a very hard time, uh, and we're seeing it play out in Arizona. We don't know how these primaries are going to turn out. But you've talked before about how candidate qualities matter so much more in the Senate than they do in the House. You can't do a generic ballot for the Senate because people care a lot more about the individual. In the House, people are like, yeah, I don't like inflation. Check the box for the the Republican or I don't like the Dobbs. Check the box. Talk about how the Senate and House stuff differs. Right. I mean, people often... um it, well, it's easier to know who your senator is than, 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 unfortunately, your House member. It's very hard right now, for example, in the Democratic Party, for moderate 
frontline Democrats to have a, a profile uh, district wide. It's hard for them to get on TV. It's hard for them to be. It's hard for Abby Spamberger, who you know ended up um, defeating a Republican, Dave Bratt in Virginia Seven, and now is like clinging to what is it going to be? I guess she's trying to serve a third term, but. Yeah, she was elected in 18, so this would she's trying to get elected to a third term, almost lost in 20, was really vocal about, um, after the election, about how, uh, how poisonous defund the police and a lot of the cultural radicalism from the left was for her race. But it's just really hard for her to have a profile the way a senator is statewide. And it's really hard for leadership. They, were, they depend on leadership to fend off the left. They can't do it individually. If they stand up and start fighting um, the left, they're, they're in danger of losing contributions and endorsements. And it's just really harder. It's harder to be a, a House member than, than a senator. When it comes time to election, however, um, what I think is interesting as, as, we, as we're um, moving into this era where there are more of us who are independents than are associating with either party is that, you know, people, there are Republican, Trump loving Republicans who think that Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman in Pennsylvania is like the real authentic dude. Yeah. They just want, they like him because he's authentic and they're not, they're actually not thinking R and D. They're not thinking red and blue. They're saying that that guy Oz is a faker. He's And a carpet bagging faker. Yes. A faker from Jersey and from Turkey. Mm-hmm. And Herschel Walker, whether you want to vote Republican and you love your peach stater and you absolutely, you know, he's still a legend and everyone's really fond of him. They're looking at him thinking there's plenty of things we can do um, to honor Herschel Walker and reward him with a nice career. But he cannot go to a Senate hearing and, and get through it. He can't get, you know, he can't through it, get through a sentence on the campaign. And they are going to go. They are going to go. To the, to, the, to the ballot box and they are going to pick Brian Kemp for governor and they are, you know, d- devoted Republicans. And then they are likely, I don't think, going to vote for Warnock. They're just not going to vote for Herschel Walker. And they did that. They voted for David Perdue for Senate in 20 and they didn't vote uh, for President Trump. And so candidates do stand out when they're really authentic and pretty appealing and when they're awful. Yes. And they seem incompetent. <laughs> and it's really hard to get past it. And so um, you, if you look at the fact that, you know, J.D. Vance won the primary in Ohio, but he had more than uh, the majority, he, you know, it was a plurality of the majority of Republicans in the Ohio primary electorate against him. Um, now he's kind of disappeared. He's kind of broke. Um, he's letting Tim Ryan, the Democrat, dominate, like, pretty much the campaign in Ohio. And you and you look at and he's polling pretty badly for a very red state that Trump won twice by eight points. And why? Because he's the faker. Right. It's a it's a Republican state. He should be polling better than Tim Ryan. Yes, Tim Ryan's the best um, candidate the Democrats could have put up, but it's supposed to be a red state in a red year. But J.D. Vance was recently in Israel in a CPAC conference like he's not trying to win that race. He's a bad candidate. And it matters. And so across the board, you see Republicans kind of just taking it for granted that they could just have people go and vote red and it was going to be fine. No one would notice it. That can happen in the House. Um, but it, 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 you can ride the wave of your party in the House, but you can't buck your party as a candidate and survive in the House. 
in the Senate, you can do different things, but the quality of your candidacy really, it, people hear about it. They know about it and, and they vote accordingly. And when we look at how chaotic and self-defeating the Republican nominating process has been in, for these Senate races and for these gubernatorial races, uh, as I assume we'll get to see play out tonight in Arizona, as we see this play out, this question of what you think is happening versus what is really happening comes into play. I think what happened was Democrats were overconfident in their ability to succeed and prevail. Uh, and it was the Virginia gubernatorial election last year that turned on the, the, the warning light on the dashboard. And Democrats said, oh, boy, really? Uh, Glenn Youngkin can beat uh, our m- moneyed, uh, popular former governor in Virginia. Okay, so maybe it's one of those kind of years. So Democrats started thinking differently. They passed uh, the infrastructure bill. They start, Things started to change. I think Republicans don't yet understand how these other forces, the Dobbs decision, number one, but also just the Republican Party's weirdness and how unsettled and unsettling. If you're a persuadable voter in Georgia or Arizona uh, or Ohio or Pennsylvania, if you're even a Republican-leaning independent, right, these are the key voters if you're one of those folks, the Republican Party is sending you a message that says, and I think the the January 6th hearings have been part of this, the Republican Party is sending you a message that says, we are not yet ready to get serious. We are not yet ready to get serious. Uh, we need a little more time for the to feel our feelings uh, and, and go through this wrenching family dispute. Uh, and I, I'm sure that that costs them. Okay, so why are Democrats still talking about or doing whatever the son of Build Back Better, Build Back Better the 14th, uh, the Joe Joe Manchin joint where it's, I I noticed that the Washington Post has to call it, because what do they call it? It's like the the anti-inflation something. Inflation Reduction Act. The Inflation Reduction Act. And they're calling it that, but then it's like, but guys, it's got a bunch of money in it for climate change stuff. So be cool. Be cool, guys. Just don't, don't say it, but we can do this. Why? You know this stuff way better than I do. Why is Chuck Schumer and why are the Democrats keep, why, why are they at this? Is it for the sake of saying that they have a win? Is it to try to please the base and somehow? What is the thinking? It's everything. Um, first of all, I really uh, don't know how many times I've done it on The Remnant for the last year and a half, but I think the Chuck Schumer has been a disaster and he never gets any blame. He never takes any heat. It's always Joe Biden's fault or Nancy Pelosi's fault, but it's never his fault. And he mucked up that whole thing last year, starting in July of 2021, all through the fall. And then after he screws it up, is saying, you know, as far as late as January, we're going to put this thing up on the floor for a vote. We'll just see where the votes come down. Like trying, like threatening to shame Joe Manchin into voting against a bill he said he was going to vote against and a bill he told him six months before had to be smaller. So the fact that he somehow got to got anything out of Joe Manchin and like got this, you know, we were waiting for, you know, the enigma of Kirsten Cinema to, to make her decision, but is beyond me. I mean, I, I guess my, the bar was so low for me. I'm stunned that they came up, but they resurrected, you know, better than dead. 
better than nothing. <laughs> I, I really have to tell you that I do know that the climate thing is important for the base, but also um, that a prescription drug reform is exceedingly popular with the American public. And if they manage to sell it in a way that they never sold bipartisan infrastructure, most Americans don't even know that it passed or what it's doing, that will help them. That, that will be a popular win. And then recently, after I've bashed the Democrats basically since vaccine distribution ended and we went into the Delta surge in Afghanistan, so yeah, a steady year, I'm actually thinking, you know what, this is really impressive. In an age where the Congress is completely dysfunctional and paralyzed, they have had a whole bunch of bipartisan wins. If you take the mansion thing aside, which is going to be a party line vote, and you look at, you know, infrastructure, first gun bill in 30 years, it, you, you, the, the chips bill, and then you and then a, a potentially a, um, an amended Electoral Count Act. This is not nothing. And uh, it's really hard to get anything bipartisan through these days. And so uh, if they get if they get a same sex marriage codification, I mean, these things are it's not it's it's these are going to be bipartisan wins that get through a Senate, a filibuster proof vote in the Senate. So anyway, I just that I, I'm just sort of trying to say something positive on that note. But yes, better than dead, better than nothing is important because it's another win that shows that they, they look like they functioned, they work together. Just having the good housekeeping seal of approval of Joe Manchin on something, saying that it's anti-inflationary is very powerful. After he said for a year, I couldn't do any of this. It's all my party's trying to basically raise costs with all of their crazy ideas. If he's on board and says it's going to work, that's that's actually to voters in the middle, that's something. Uh, people who've been following um, Joe Manchin, you know, trying to stop the madness of the Democratic Party. I don't think it's going to really please the base and, like, you know, in some, it's not going to energize them, but it's they'll be less disappointed that, like I said, they will have passed something and that they, that this, again, is just part of the stew of, like, mitigating, slowing the red wave, mitigating losses, making your base less pissed off, making them more angry about um, Republicans, extremism, January 6th, Dobbs, everything, and trying to generate new voters that weren't necessarily going to come out this fall. And that, um, on the margins where some of these races will be won and lost, it will help them. It is a testament to how dumb our primary election system is that you listed a pretty impressive, as I said, that that bipartisan infrastructure bill was the most significant non-emergency bipartisan policy action in 20 years, right? So you'd have to go back to No Child Left Behind to find a time where you had bipartisan buy-in on a big proactive thing, not 30 seconds to midnight, we must enact this today or we will all die, but okay, let's let's work together and come up with a piece of legislation. We're going to vote on it. Uh, in an in a saner political system, things like that uh, and the chips bill, and uh, you mentioned same sex marriage. We'll see how that lands. I think that's going to be a tough one for Republicans. <laughs> I think Senate Republicans are going to have a bad outing on the same sex marriage legislation. It's going to, that's going to leave a mark, but the fact that 
Joe Biden is not running as a guy who says, I brought people together. We worked it out. We, we made big progress on important things, and I'm proud to do that. Um, neither party can say it because they're afraid of their primary voters, right? They're afraid that if they say, they say, oh, we did it. Hooray. We, we worked across the aisle and gave the 60% of Americans who crave competency uh, and capability, we gave them what they wanted. Well, no, that other 40%, 20 on each side is going to come and eat your lunch. I want to take one quick discursion here uh, about Joe Manchin. You heard him on Sunday uh, with our friend Brett Baer and also on uh, CBS, I think, sounding very much like a person who might be running for president is what he sounded like to me. Uh, he sounded like a guy who was not cert certainly opening the door to that he would not be a Democrat in 2024. Uh, I don't think Joe Manchin ever becomes a Republican. I can say as a West Virginian, there's just no reason for Joe Manchin to ever be a Republican because there is no Democratic Party in West Virginia. Uh, as you referenced, the idea that Chuck Schumer is going to intimidate Joe Manchin in West Virginia by turning the progressive base against him, like that's like four school teachers uh, who live next to the Capitol. The rest of the state, the progressive movement is pretty much not, uh, not present in West Virginia. How do you handicap I know I hate, uh, actually, I remember you and I were giving a speech one time and we got this question together. I hate this question, but I am going to give it to you anyway, which is, is this a time if you have a Trump versus Biden that you could have a third party candidacy work in 2024? I'm politically homeless and I think the duopoly has failed. And so I'm, I don't want to criticize third party efforts because I want a thousand flowers to bloom. Although when you look at them rationally, they have, you know, traditionally historically served as spoilers, of course. Um, I do not believe that Joe Biden's going to run. I wrote that several weeks ago, and I think that um, he can't run for several reasons, not just his age, and um, that will be an open competitive primary on the Democratic side. And I urge the president not to back um, Vice President Harris, but to stay neutral in the primary, which will make a lot of people mad, but it is the best thing for his party and best thing for his uh, for the country, period. Let me just say, you and I are 100% on the same page. I think Joe Biden is a patriotic person, and I think he loves his country very much. And boy, would he do his country a service if the day after midterms, he said, folks, this is it. We're going to, the next two years, we're going to see what I can get done as president, working with uh, Mitch McConnell, working with the Republic. We'll see what we can do. Uh, and tell the Democrats to go air it out and figure out who their own guy is. You're smart. You're smart. So my timing's a little bit different only because what I believe is that Nancy Pelosi won't stand for leadership after re-election to her seat, which she'll then give up. This will open a huge hornet's nest, prog mod fight in the Democratic caucus on the House side to replace Nancy Pelosi with someone who can handle Joe Biden's impeachment and two years of Hunter Biden investigations in the Republican House. And this will be such a mess that I think Joe Biden sort of has to wait a little bit, but I'm asking him for early winter. So moving on from there, um, yeah, I think most Americans, uh, you were citing polling before, 
just dread the idea of Biden or Trump. I think if Biden gets out early, A, he takes he totally takes the air out of the balloon as in, on his impeachment, but he's also able to tell the country it shouldn't be me or Trump. It's time to move on, the next generation, both parties. And he should talk about how people are disaffected with both parties and they they're looking for a broad coalition that speaks to um, shared values about democracy, to you know, people who want to protect the system, who want to protect the truth and facts, um, but who um, want to fund the police. And, you know, he doesn't have to really beat up on the left so much. He can sort of just praise the middle um, and and praise compromise and working together and cooperation, like you had just mentioned. So this is a very strange time, Chris, where the plates are going to shift so much that I can't say no, a third party won't work. And, And I obviously want I want something to open up. I want innovation in our politics. I want competition in our politics. I want our primaries to change. I want independent voices. I, I, you know, I, I, I would like five independent senators in the Senate so that neither McConnell or Schumer could control the majority. Um, so I'm for radical change and disruption. I don't know if in 2024 a third party candidate or a unity ticket can win. Um, I think there are several efforts underway at trying to get at that for a reason, because the, because the landscape is, I think, is ripe. Uh, doesn't mean it will succeed, but certainly when you look at the country, if you look at more and more people IDing as a, as uh, independent, and you look at the um, dread uh, um, of Trump and Biden, I, I do think, um, and and the failure of the left and the failure of the far right, I think that you know it's it's calling for a new a new way and a new, a new perspective. And I think that it'll depend, oh boy, you know, if the Democrats put up, what if Gretchen Whitmer wins, she wins her gubernatorial race and then is, and then is like a leading, you know, contender in the Democratic nomination and, and is, and it's not Sanders versus Warren versus, you know, that it's, that the, that there's a sort of, centric centrist is you know ish normal yeah like i just put together a broad coalition and won me over here midwest girl you know so it just is going to depend which party who the parties put up and right and that what opportunity is there at that point for the third party person so um i don't know what direction they'll take if they go radical left and right um, then there's a better chance for that third party for Matthew McConaughey to step up and <laughs> and be a candidate. But um, that's my long windbag answer. You know, it's obviously one of my favorite topics, so I just can't stop talking. But um, I think there's, uh, you know, I we never we don't know. It's I think it's the wild west now. It's the the challenge with uh, the third party stuff. Um, I have written about in uh, my first book and care a lot. I love the 1992 election. Um, because it was, uh, the wild west, as you said, it was a weird, it was a weird time, right? The cold war is ending the new generation ascendant. What the heck is going on in the world? And maybe it didn't matter that Bill Clinton smoked reefer. Maybe it didn't matter if he had a mistress, maybe, like maybe nothing matters anymore. Maybe blah, 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 blah. Um, the only way that Ross Perot, and by the way, at this point, uh, well, three weeks ago, uh, what was that? 30 years ago, 
Um, Ross Perot was leading the polls against Bush and Clinton uh, and was ahead and clearly ahead in all the polls. Then there's some weird stuff that happened. Uh, you remember the thing about his daughter's wedding, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, the point being, Ross Perot's success was not just in taking his crew cut onto uh, Larry King and having charts. They got on the ballot. And if you want to run, the, the duopoly has created such a circumstance where ballot access is brutally hard. And in states that are one-party controlled, get out of here, right? You want to get on the ballot in Alabama? You want to get on the ballot in, you know, Vermont? Give it a shot, folks. See what happens. So it costs a lot of money. You know, as a matter of fact, one of the reasons that Gretchen Whitmer uh, uh, has a good chance to get reelected is the Republican frontrunners couldn't deal with ballot access. They hired people to get signatures to qualify for the ballot, and they got a bunch of forgeries and oops. So if the, the problem for the third party, so I think Manchin has potential, as you say, if you've got far left and far right, or it, I call it the people of goodwill, a coalition of the people of goodwill, of Democrats, Republicans, liberals and conservatives and moderates who all say, yeah, we like the Constitution. We should probably keep that. We should probably not uh, slander and maliciously uh, malign our opponents just for narrow advantage. Uh, and the naked lust for power is repellent. So those people would like to have a candidate if you have a wicked, iniquitous person running on the right and a radical progressive on the left. But the problem is, to be ready to do that, you pretty much have to start now, right? And you need a lot of money. And the way Perot did it, for anybody who cares, which now we're down to like two people, but for anybody who cares, <laughs> the way Perot did it, there was a separate organization that he had. It was called United We Stand. There was actually an outgrowth of his work uh, with POWs after the Vietnam War. And he said, well, if they can get me on the ballot, then I will run. And Manchin needs some vehicle like that so that he doesn't have to be running for president every day. And people say, how's Joe Manchin polling? Well, he's still at 3%. Four, up, he's up to 4.5%. So instead of having to do that, he can say, well, I'm focused on torturing Chuck Schumer uh, and I'll make a decision about that later, but the ballot access stuff has to start now if he wants to. Well, we'll see if there is enough interest from money in the middle, people who are supporting the kind of politicians you describe, um, the people who, I mean, certainly there are donors who are obviously telling Joe Manchin, we wish you were president. I mean, they're, they, they've gone... I'm sure donors have gone back to Mitt Romney a hundred times, you know, since 2016 and said, could you just rethink it? You're really popular now in the middle. Um, and so, you know, you, it, it, it's, it depends on whether or not someone's going to, like you said, build the infrastructure, but certainly the appetite is there. Um, and I imagine it is among donors that between there and building the infrastructure is the C, but I mean, you know, it's, it's not out of the question. I also think that the, increasing use of rank choice and uh, primary innovation. I, I have a theory, which is we are at the end of the age that our parents and grandparents' generation built. And Roe was part of that consensus. There was a consensus that was forged coming out of the, the, the cauldron 
of the late 60s and then our failure in Vietnam. So that by 75, 76, America creates a new consensus and says, this is how we're going to get along and this is how we're going to deal with this stuff. And we've exhausted it now, right? We have now reached a point where we have exhausted because we have, of course, scraped it down for our own personal benefit and the raw acquisition of power over time. But that's what you do with the consensuses. Um, I really feel like 2024 will be, I know realigning is an overused term, but it will, we are going to see a new paradigm of some kind come out of 2024. I don't think it's a coincidence that the candidates in 2020 were very elderly and very much baby boom, right, you know, right in the middle of the baby boom, these guys. And I do feel like we are at that moment. It's exciting, but it's scary because I don't know whether we want to be good. Uh, it was good before when Americans wanted to be good, uh, where, where civic virtue was seen as a thing of value and necessary and that we wanted to sort of live up to those things. What is your sense in terms of the cynicism, my, I don't know if you ever heard me joke that um, Donald Trump was Katy Perry and Hillary Clinton was Taylor Swift. Uh, Hillary Clinton <laughs> was very sincere, but very anguished. Uh, and Donald Trump was like, uh, do you like what I said? If not, JK, LOLZ. It was just a joke. Why are you taking yourself so seriously? Uh, sort of the barstool sport. They call them barstool conservatives or whatever. This sort of blow it off cynicism. You have young people. Uh, you uh, know young people. What do you think? Are we able, are we going to be able to live in a country where sincerity can be allowed to exist in, in our little terrarium? That is really the most important question because while I see a reaction among people our age and our parents' age, um, and really um, horrified by the the complete loss of civic virtue, civic trust, civic spirit. Um, Chris, if you told me two and a half years ago that school nurses, librarians, hospital nurses, doctors, school board members, school principals, election workers would be harassed, hunted, and haunted across the board to the point where they were, they really didn't know if they could work in their profession another day, let alone another year, let alone the rest of their career, I would not have believed you. So the reaction among those of us who've been here a while is like, we're really disappointed and we're really hurt because we remember what was. And we remember, we know what this country can be. But my kids can't see that. You know, I can make them watch George Herbert Walker Bush's funeral and Barbara Bush's funeral and John McCain's funeral and Bob Dole's funeral, but they can't really integrate what we're talking about because they haven't seen it and there have been no grown-ups in charge. And so from the Clintons on, really, I mean, what, what are they looking at? They're just, it's a mess. And that, um, even though we had good economic times with Bill Clinton, it was like, like you said, that was the, so sort of when it ended where you could, you know, 
the Clintons are liars. They're not the liar that Donald Trump is, but you know, they, they're, they're liars and they're players and they're hustlers. And, um, George Bush, you know, maybe he got the job because of his dad was a president. And then they lied about weapons of mass destruction and then everything changed and then nine 11 and then Trump. And it's just like, what is this sort of cascading series of, of chaotic events where Americans, you know, only increased their distrust of each other, didn't come together. Um, and, and, and then we went through this massive pandemic, which is the most profound in, in their memory of, of, you know, big national events. And they saw the country, you know, um, tear into pieces, uh, uh, you know, make it a political game, fight over everything, uh, masks and, and shots. And, and so I don't know, I don't know that we, that, that they can, I'm sure they want to restore civility, but they, they, they don't, they haven't lived in it. So it's a very strange, um, it's a very strange passage that we're in with that age group. And I think if, if people in our generation and above just work to do what we can to try to preserve some of it, um, maybe we provide enough of a roadmap, um, and, and something for them to preserve, but it's, it's a big question right now. And it takes a lot, you know, no, no greater love hath any man than to lay down his life for his friends. Uh, and political courage is doing the thing that is going to cost you your job and doing it anyway, right? Where you do it. I think uh, Liz Cheney uh, is a good example of a person who's like, yeah, this will probably cost me uh, a seat in the United States Congress, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's what I think is the right thing to do. And whether you agree with her or disagree with her, you see her do that. You say, huh, that's pretty courageous. Um, the willingness... I, 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 put it, I, think, I think the problem, I call it the politicoification of everything, uh, but that started in the mid-aughts where it was like, who's winning the morning? Who won the day? Who's having a bet? Well, this was a politically smart move. And really what Trump did, and Obama actually did a lot of it too, but was uh, explain his own moves as he was doing it. See, this is why I'm doing this thing is because it's going to hurt them and it's going to help me. Uh, this is my favorite, of course, always was the, uh, uh, Trump tower meeting never happened. Okay. It happened, but it was about, uh, adoption. Okay. It was about ad adoption, but it wasn't about adoption, but, uh, the president didn't know anything about it. Okay. Actually the president wrote the statement lying about it at the beginning, but you know what? It was the smart thing to do and you do it anyway. And this was a good enough argument for a lot of Republicans to say like, well, Democrats are bad. We have to be bad too. We've got to do the wrong things in order to win. And I think what it takes are people of courage who are willing to lose, right? People of courage who are willing to say, as my boss, Bill Salmon used to say, they can kill you, but they can't eat you. Uh, and go and, and just, and just go do it. That's what's required. Okay. So to that point, Joe Biden, you and I are in accord, the uh, Stoddard-Steyerwald Accord of 2022. Um, so you think Nancy Pelosi does step aside? You think that she is going to, she's really going to do it? I do not think that she is running for leadership again. I don't have anything solid or I would have written it. <laughs> but I... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, she, I, it is, 
Remember, she wasn't sure she was going to run for another term. So I think she did what she could to say to run again so that she could fundraise again so she could help the Democrats through a really, really rough year. But I don't know. I don't think that she's going to run for minority leader or speaker. I mean, I don't think they're going to hold the House. But no, I think she's I think she's going to give her seat up because and her daughter wants it. For, for listeners, so there are throughout history people who have lost the House, speakers who have lost the House and failed to regain it in the next term, uh, but never twice. And Nancy Pelosi was the first. So she won the House. She won the speakership in 2006, lost it in 2010, stayed out in 2012, stayed out in 2014, stayed out in 2016, and then only won it back in 2018. In the old days, what was the guy who, um, the longtime speaker from Texas, uh, the New Deal Democrat, Sam Rayburn, who was it that Sam Rayburn traded with? He was a Republican from Massachusetts. They traded back three or four times. Martin, I think, was his name. Uh, but they traded back a few times. Pelosi's the only person who held out that long uh, in defeat and kept coming back and running and kept coming back and winning. That probably says a lot about her, but probably more about how divided the Democratic conference was and how hard it was for them to get on the same page. So if she steps aside, what the heck happens, A.B. Stoddard? What kind of a, just a blood sport, uh, medieval jousting tournament takes place in the House if they, as they try to replace Nancy Pelosi? Because as you pointed out, life in the minority is hard and would be, that, that you're, you're, people have to sign up for really rough duty. What is that race, what would that race look like? So before, um the the era of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Joe Crowley was, who she beat in a primary in New York, was widely considered to be, you know, kind of up next, moving through the ranks, to be the post-Denny Hoyer, Nancy Pelosi, Jim Clyburn, next leader. Now he's gone, and Hakeem Jeffries of New York has been um, the, 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 the next name. Um, so there are a lot of younger members who will want to be in the number two, three, four slots and be at the leadership table. But, um, I think that, uh, there was some talk off the record in, um, in 21, that maybe it would be better if Jim Clyburn was a placeholder for two years, a bridge um, as minority leader to, before passing the torch to the next generation. I don't know if that's a still a viable um, option, but it, it will be hard, even for Hakeem Jeffries, if he gets the, the, if he's the consensus pick and does not spark a big progressive versus moderate um, kerfuffle, uh, it's still going to be hard for him to handle that this the ugliness of 2023. I mean, 2023 is going to include, as I said, an impeachment because the base, you know, that Trump was impeached twice and the base will demand it. And then the Hunter Biden investigation should be in multiple committees going on nonstop for two years. Um, so I I just think, as, as you said, rough duty. I mean, it's it's just going to be, you're going to have this progressive moderate um, divide no matter what. It'll just be for lower down leadership positions. If if Hakeem Jeffries is a consensus pick, 
We don't even know that he is, depending on the results of the elections and what he says and what the consensus is about what the results of the elections were. I mean, you know, what led to them. And then, um, as as I said, you're going to be heading into this. It's going to be so awkward because the president won't have spoken and said what his plans are. And people are going to be saying increasingly out loud that they think that he shouldn't run again during this time. So the party will be very divided and very vocal about their divisions. And that will make it hard for the leadership races and it'll make it hard for them to govern into a presidential year. And as, as you point out, and this takes us back to where we started, it doesn't matter what happens in 2022 nearly as much as what people think happens in 2022, because it's not like some governing coalition is going to come out of the 2022 midterms, right? Whatever kind of Senate we have, we're going to have divided government, and it's going to be gridlocky. But what will matter is what do the Democrats and Republicans uh, running in 2024 and primary voters think happened? Uh, we saw how they took the wrong cues in 2018 to 2020. They thought that the uh, Democratic Socialist moment had arrived, and then they said, oops, uh, and, and, and we'll see how all of that goes. Okay, last thing. What one piece of advice would you give to you when you were starting out as a journalist in Washington, D.C.? If you could go back professional advice that you would give to a young you. What should the uh, aspirant A.B. Stoddards of the future, what should they know to be good at what they do? Because I think Jonah has a lot of uh, journalistic kind of uh, uh, listeners. And surprisingly, for uh, an old fart, uh, quite a lot of young people. So what's, what, is the, what is the single piece of advice that you would most want to pass along? I just knew that you were going to have a trick question on this spot with me. <laughs> I've been, I've been, I, I, I could barely sleep last night. I knew it was coming. Um, I think that if, I think we always would look back and say, oh, I just wish I had a little more, um, you know, guts to do such and such. And I think in terms of learning the most you can on the way up or the way over or the way out or whatever it is, that I would have tried, you know, without stalking them and being too, you know, too annoying to whenever I could ingratiate myself with people, you know, in the business, nice editors who would talk to you while you were, you know, circulating copies of the Washington Post around the newsroom and that type of thing. Anytime you spoke to them, just sort of ask them, not what's your best advice for me, but kind of what is, what surprised you about this business? What's a, what what surprised you um, in your career? And I think those, A, they're more interesting conversations than what advice do you have for me, which always sounds like, will you get me my next internship or whatever? But those are, that's a really easier conversation to start. And I think you learn more. And so I just think learning, trying to sort of um, digest as much wisdom as you can from experienced people is is so helpful. And talking to people who are, older than you and who've been through it, um, it's just so helpful anyway as you mature. And so I, I think it just screwing up the courage to have those conversations and, and try to glean some wisdom um, and some perspective and some context 
for a business now that changes so much more quickly than when I was coming up in it um, would it would be really valuable. And I wish I could go back and and, and have um, asked some more um, questions like that um, from my from my elders and the people that and, and mentors and people that or even people that were speaking to me briefly. Uh, I think that's an easy question to ask, and I think it you you learn a lot, and I think it helps kind of pave pave the way. Well, if we had a generation of journal journalists half as good, half as conscientious, and half as thoughtful as you, uh, we would be all set. So I hope everybody listens. My advice, of course, is August is not too soon for a butterfly and stuff pork loin. Uh, tie it well. <laughs> uh, get your get your heat heat point right, and remember when you put the probe in. You're going to want to go into the meat, not into the stuffing. It's a rookie mistake. So that's that's my advice. Uh, A.B. Stoddard, you, are, you make my heart so happy to be with you. Thank you for doing this. I know Jonah appreciates it too. Uh, have a wonderful rest of the day, and thank you for being on The Remnant. It is always a pleasure to be with my brother, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. And you, gentle listeners... Jonah will return at some point in the future, but until he does, we will be with you in his stead, or me or somebody will be around to help out. Uh, and uh, we miss him, but we're here for you. Thanks for hanging out. We'll see you soon. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW report prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.